welcome everyone. Uh, first off, it's so nice to see all the people who responded in the, uh, the vote in the chat actually here. I really appreciate everyone's enthusiasm, even you know, as classes, hopefully for everyone, have officially ended for the semester to still be seeking opportunities uh, to be inspired to, to be in Pizuk. Um It's been a really, um, again, a semester that none of us expected for this, this semester uh, to play out the way it played out for all of Kal Yisrael, for us on this campus in particular. Um, and just really want to give a big yashakalach to all of those who are here now, but also all those who've been here over the course of the entire semester for really being so plugged in um, to everything that has been going on, all the opportunities to learn together, the opportunities to dive in together, the opportunities to be together as a community um, amongst all of Kal Yisrael during this time. Um, and one of the things that we always um, enjoy being able to do over the course of the semester um, is to have Rabbi Berg come in and, and address us amongst many other speakers from Eretz Yisrael. During this semester, uh, we haven't obviously had as many opportunities to uh, whether it be Tira Rabbi Berg or other people from Eretz Yisrael because of everything that's been going on. Uh, I think it's fitting to end off the semester um, now that we are able to have Rabbi Berg and second semester we'll be able to have Bezar Hashem Rabbi Berg another time Bezar Hashem um, in addition to many other speakers from Eretz Yisrael to, uh, to, to, to continue to gain that physic to take a step um, further in our connection to everything that's going on to the Jewish people in Kal Yisrael. Without further ado, Rabbi Berg. It's a beautiful thing to be introduced as a Jew from Eretz Yisrael. I'll tell you honestly, I, I probably would not have been here. The matzah in Eretz Yisrael, no, no mic, no mic. I'll, I'll speak loud enough. It's okay. Yeah. I promise. I, I'll do my best. Yeah. I probably would not have come. If I, if I knew that the matzah in Eretz Yisrael was still going to be like this, I thought that it had calmed down. I arrived in Los Angeles on, on Friday to the news that there was a rocket attack over my house. And it, it puts things in perspective. You know, things, things get calm, things heat up. I just want to share with you, having nothing to do with tonight's shear, but I just want to share with you how much it means to every single Jew in Eretz Yisrael to know that you're with us. It's, it's not a small thing. I have, I have Chaveirim, I have Talmidim that are in the army, that are in Gaza, that are in the borders of Lebanon. I unfortunately already have people that I know that have sacrificed their lives for our country. And to know that you're with us, I know you might feel like it's nothing. You might feel like it's just like, of course, Eretz Yisrael is in our thoughts. But for those of us that live in Eretz Yisrael, I want you to know it's no small thing. And whenever we hear that there's people saying Tilim and people, a chaver of mine in a very beautiful way, he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's saying, but he was just like, yeah, I don't know, I'm not into this whole thing of like going, like he's coming to Eretz Yisrael, he's like, I'm not into this whole thing of like, visiting the bases of the Chayalim, it, it hurt me so deeply to hear him say that because that's such a distant way of thinking about it. It's such like a, like a removed way of thinking about it. These are our children. They're our, they're our children's friends. They're our Talmidim. They're our... It's very painful to hear when someone says that. And I think most people are not like that. But just even by way of introduction, 
just to, to recognize that this is where we are right now in history. <coughs> I, I want to speak about the first Rashi and Parshas Vayigash. Pasuk says, Vayigash, I love Yehuda. Yehuda approached Yosef HaTzadik, not knowing that it was Yosef HaTzadik. Vayoymer, and he said, Be Adoni, please my master. Yedaber na'avdecha, ba'azne Adoni, if I can speak into your ears. And please don't get angry at your servant. For you are like Paro. And Rashi over here gives a number of pshatim. I'm only going to speak about two of them tonight. But Rashi here gives a number of pshatim that I think are very relevant for us. The first thing Rashi says, Rashi says, the simple explanation, the Pashat Shad of the Pasuk, is in my eyes, Yehuda is saying to Yosef HaTzadik, as the Viceroy of Mitzrayim, in my eyes, you're like Paro. You have the same, same Hashivos. Another Pshat in Rashi, I'm skipping a little bit, is the exact opposite Pshat. Davar Rashi says, Ma Paro geyser ve'enu mekayim, just as Paro decrees, but he doesn't necessarily fulfill his decrees, he's not honest. Mavtiach, ve'ena ose, he makes avtachas, he makes promises, but he doesn't do what he promises. Af atakein, zo to you. V'chizuhi simas ayin, she'amarta lo'asom encha alav. Is this setting an eye, as you said, that you wish to set your eye upon him? Is this what it means to take Binyamin? So we have two very different pshatim in Rashi. The first pshat is, you're, you're awesome, you're like Paro, you're a person of chashivas. The second pshat is exactly the opposite. You're like Paro in that you don't keep your word. You said bring Binyamin and now look what you're doing. So I want to speak about these two pshatim in Rashi from our perspective. Everything that the Torah says, every word that the Torah writes, every word of Rashi is Choshev. And these are lessons for us. These are, not, these are not just stam, like philosophical things. These are lessons for us. So let's first look at the beginning of Rashi. What does it mean to give Musr to somebody? And really when I say to give Musr to somebody, I don't mean to somebody else. Really, I mean, what does it mean not only to speak to somebody else, but to speak to ourselves? How do we speak to ourselves? So it's a beautiful, beautiful shot that I heard many years ago from Rav Yisrael Salanter. Rav Yisrael Salanter says, when you're giving somebody Musr, you have to be very careful. A person needs to be well enough to receive Musr. Lamashal, years ago, many years ago already, it's going back almost, uh, almost 10 years ago, I got very, very sick. I ended up in the hospital for a month. There was a certain stage where it was Mamash Sakonus Nefashus. Rebbe blessed me, and, I, and Baruch Hashem, I, I was given good care, and, and, and Baruch Hashem, I'm healthy. But I was in the ICU, in Hadassah in Karim Hospital. And it, it's, a, it's a scary thing if you've ever been in the ICU, so you can tell the difference if you're in the regular hospital or you're in the ICU. 
In, in the regular hospital in Hadassah and Kerem, so they have very sweet Sephardi nurses. You know, I'm talking, you know, like, you know what I mean, Sephardi nurses? Like, like Israelis have a, like a beautiful, especially these, like these wonderful Israeli Sephardi nurses, they have like a sweet way of speaking to you. Like if they're giving you, like if they're taking your blood or they're putting in an IV, so like, come here in the Shamala. You know, like they're very like, they're very sweet, they're very kind, they're very gentle. And they're like apologetic if they don't get the vein. And I was, for the first week, I was, in, I was in the regular part of the hospital, but my condition deteriorated. They moved me into the ICU. I don't mean to offend anybody, but you could tell that you're in a different section of the hospital because the nurses are Russian in the ICU. Thank you very much for coming with me on that, by the way. A bunch of you just did this. A bunch of you just <laughs> and, and the Russian nurses, not that they're, one, they're wonderful people, they're nice people, but the Russian nurses, like, when they're giving me, like, my IV in the morning, so, like, they grab your arm and they're, like, jabbing you, and they're, like... <laughs> And I'm like, ow! And they're like, stop complaining, you're dying. And I was like, it looks very... And the rub of my shul came to visit me and he saw this nurse and she was like, Mamish beating me up. And he's like, could you be a little bit more gentle with him? And she's like, no, this is important. Like, this is very, like... And then when I Baruch Hashem was out of the ICU, I was back to the Sephardi nurses. I was like, it's so nice to see you again. You know, like, it's like, I couldn't have surgery until the end of the summer. I went into the hospital for a month in the beginning of the summer. And the doctors wanted me to wait until the end of the summer to have surgery because they said your system needs to like, get less inflamed and you need to be healthy. You need to be healthy before you could have surgery. It's counterintuitive to think of ourselves that way. But we need to have a, a baseline level of health because when they cut you open, the recovery time is very difficult. And we see this today. We see especially when it comes to teenagers, but really when it comes to all of us. That if we give somebody Musr and they're not in a place to take that Musr and they're not strong enough and they don't have a, a strong enough sense of self to be able to hear, a, a, again, a constructive criticism said in a kind way. But if they're not at a certain level of health, then the Musr could chas v'shalom kill. Rav Shlomo Freifeld, Zechot Tzadik Levrach, who was the founding Rosh Shiva of Shayashiv, quoted from his Rebbe Rav Hutner, Rosh Shiva of Chaim Berlin. And it was a Talmud of the altar of Slabadka, and he himself had learned in Slabadka. He said the reason why Navardic Musr in America never became popular and Slabodka's Musr became so popular is because in Navardic they constantly told you that you were a nish. In Slabodka they told you, Godless Adam, you're a child of the Rabbanishalam. And he said a person has to be a zikh before they're a nish. A person has to be a something before they could be told they're a nothing. So in Europe, when a person had a baseline level of self-esteem, so the author of Navarra could come to his Talmidim and say, you're a nisht, you're a nisht. But to come to America, Rav Hutner said, when kids have so much, so, such low self-esteem, and to tell a kid you're a nisht, it'll mamish kill them. First you have to tell them they're a zikh before you tell them they're a nisht. And we see that this is true. We see that today, there are so many children, and when I say children, I mean us. I mean us, I mean myself. That, that if chas v'shalom we come to a child who's not ready to hear and we say a negative thing, that negative thing, if the child does not have enough of a sense of self, if the patient is not healthy, the child has the capacity to be killed by the Musa that we're giving. And, and this is what's happening inside of many of us. There's something called an inner critic. And I imagine that if we polled the room and we had an anonymous poll, and I asked you, level 1 to 10, how strong is your inner critic? 
I imagine that for many of you the answer would be way too strong. There's a certain sense that we have of being real with ourselves means being nasty with ourselves. What do you mean? Rebbe, I hear this all the time. Rebbe, I'm, I'm finally being honest with myself. Don't you want me to be honest with myself? You're not being honest with yourself because you're being cruel to yourself. We say, Avinu to know, to have bina and seichel, to know requires recognizing that compassion is not the opposite of truth. If a person looks at themselves and they're just constantly beating themselves up and they say, what do you mean? I'm being honest with myself. You're not being honest with yourself. You're being cruel to yourself. And if you're looking at yourself through the lens of cruelty, if the glasses that you have on are colored with the tint of self-hatred, that's not called honesty. It doesn't give, I know this is a dangerous word to say in America because it's used in a very dangerous way, but it doesn't give the appropriate context to what's actually happening. I'll tell you what I mean. Yeah, you, have a, uh, you have a guy in yeshiva. I'll make it a guy so it's easier for everyone here to... It's like this, then. it's like the guys, it's not us, it's the guys, yeah? <laughs> you have a guy in yeshiva and, and, and he's steiging and he's doing great. And then one night, he gets a phone call from a friend to go to a place that he knows he shouldn't go, and that he hasn't been in such a place in six weeks or eight weeks. And in a moment of, uh, in a moment of weakness, he, uh, a ruach shtus comes into his head, and he makes a decision to go to that place. But he promises himself, I'm not going to do anything. You know how you lie to yourself? It's like a little bit at a time. You ever do that? Like, I'm, I'm not really talking to him. I just need to check in with him. You know that move that you do? It's like a, it's a, little, too, a little too close to home. We'll keep it, keep it with the guys, make it a little bit easier for ourselves. No, we're not really talking, we're just, we have to like run an NCSY event together, but we, we made the Dharam, like we're very, and we're very careful about it. But, I, but now that it's afterwards, I don't know, maybe it's shy. I'm not sure. I'm going to ask somebody else. I just got that phone call today, that's why. <laughs> so the guy says, I'm going to go to that place, I'm not going to do anything, Rebbe, you'll see, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not, it's not where I am anymore. But then something happened and he ended up doing the thing that he promised himself that he wouldn't do and he comes to the yeshiva Sunday morning and he's talking to his rebbeim and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a shegetz, I'm, I'm a terrible person. I, I promised myself I wouldn't do it and then I ended up doing it again. So, and, and he thinks he's being honest with himself. He's not being honest with himself because there's no compassion in that entire conversation. And if I asked him, tell me, what made you go? What made you make that initial decision to go to that place on Thursday night? So, he said, well, my friend invited me, and I didn't feel like I could say no to him. And why didn't you feel like you can say no to him? Well, because I've been friends with him forever, and I feel already like even though I'm making this move in my life to decide to become maybe a little bit more religiously inclined and maybe to make certain decisions, but I'm also feeling, and this is real, I'm feeling a little bit lonely, and I'm feeling a little bit scared that maybe if I make that move, I'm not going to end up with any friends. Or even if I do up with friend, end up with friends, but it's going to be like those guys. And I always promise myself that I'm not going to be one of those guys, right? And you're going through something. So I made the decision to go out of fear that I would lose my friends. And then what happened after that? Everyone was doing it, and I was feeling excluded, and they were judging me. That's much more honest because it's real, because it's compassionate. It's giving context to what's actually happening. The emphasis is that when we start off giving Musr to a person, Yehuda is about to give a fiery Musr to, to Yosef Atzad. So the simple shot that Rashi said is, you're like Paro. You know what, you know what it's, it's like? Uh, it's like if you ever say... You ever say to like a Rebbe or somebody or like a teacher and you start off and you go like, I mean this in the most respectful way possible? You know how like the next words out of your mouth are atrocious? 
know what I'm talking about? You know, like, when everyone comes and they say, with all due respect, the next thing is going to be like, like every rabbi, whenever they hear the words, with all due respect, they like brace themselves. They're like, okay, this is going to be bad, you know? <laughs> the simple shot is he's coming and saying, you're like Paro. You're like Paro. We have a tremendous amount of respect for you. But then the next thing you're going to say is going to be nasty. So what's the point of saying that you're like Paro? The Teretz is that Yehuda was a psychological genius. He was a psychological genius. He understood, I'm giving Musr to somebody. The first thing I need to do is not butter them up. It's not with all due respect. He's telling him, the way that I see you is like a Paro. The way that I see you is, you're this big, you're massive, you're huge, you're amazing. And this behavior is This behavior, it's not you. I, I can't imagine that this is you. Do you know the difference when a, when a Rebbe calls in a Talmud? Again, I'm not talking about Rebbe, Rebbeim and Talmidim. I'm talking about the words that we have within ourselves. When a Rebbe calls in a Talmud and he says to him, this is not you. This behavior, it doesn't suit you. It doesn't fit you. I don't see you that way. You're much bigger than your lowest moment. So the Talmud, what does the Talmud hear? The Talmud hears, ah, Rebbe believes in me. Rebbe sees me differently than the way I see myself. I have to borrow my Rebbe's eyes. Because the eyes that I look at myself with are the eyes that led me to this behavior. Because the way that we see ourselves ultimately becomes the way that we behave. If a Rebbe chas calls in a Talmud and says, How could you do this? You're destroying the Talmud. What do you mean, how could you do this? It's understandable that he could do this. He felt like a piece of garbage, so he acted like a piece of garbage. There's a Rebbe in a certain yeshiva who's a very dear friend of mine. And he had a boy who, who cut morning seder to go. He went to buy some sort of sporting goods thing. And he had to buy it in like, like Tel Aviv or something. I don't know. It was like a whole meister. And the boy didn't want the Rebbe to know that he was going to that place. He's supposed to be in seder. So he messaged the Rebbe and he told the Rebbe, yeah, I'm going. Like my uncle's making a bris and I have to be at the bris. The Rebbe didn't know any better. So the Rebbe said, okay, by all means, enjoy the bris. But then one of the boys, you know, like, I don't know if you know this, but you know, like, boys, like, accidentally give stuff up all the time? You know that, you know that move? They're like, the Rebbe walks in and they're whispering in sheer, but there's that one guy who has his back to the Rebbe, so he's like, whispers the thing out loud, and the Rebbe overhears. So the Rebbe heard that he wasn't by a bris, and that he was lied to. So he didn't know what to do. So he walked into the Rosh Hashiva's office. Not, not, not my yeshiva, different yeshiva. He walked into the Rosh Hashiva's office. And he said to the Rosh Hashiva, what do I do? Do you want me to call the boy in? You want me to tell him that I know that he was lying? So the Rosh Hashiva said, I guarantee you that somebody already messaged this boy to tell him that you know that he wasn't where he said he was. He said, so now the boy is feeling terribly embarrassed. Now the boy is sitting here and he's saying, Rebbe knows that I lied to him. The question now, this is what the Rosh Hashiva said to that Rebbe, is what are you going to do to tell that Talmud that he's still loved? And this is a high-level yeshiva. He says, what are you going to do to tell the Talmud that even though he made a mistake and he made a bad decision and he, and he told something that wasn't true to his Rebbe and maybe he lost a little bit of trust. But the first thing is, what are you going to do to bring him in, to tell him, this, this person in front of me, okay, you're not, you're not defined by your lowest moments. I see you like this. This is what Yehuda was telling Paro. He was telling Yosef at Tzaddik. In his mind, he was the viceroy of Egypt. He says, you're not behaving like the viceroy of Egypt. You're not behaving like the Viceroy of Egypt. In our minds, the way I see you, you're massive. What do you think it would be like if we had that voice inside of ourselves? What would it be like to be able to look at ourselves, to look at our lowest moments, to look at the mistakes that we've made, and to see ourselves through the lens of compassion, 
And that if we do something that we're not proud of, to be able to stop and go, Lamaisa, really, really, I'm here. But I behaved in a lower way. And the only reason that I behaved in a lower way is because I see myself in that way. And my avoda is to lift myself up. Because I can't call myself a nisht until I'm a zikh. That's the first part of what Yehuda is telling Yosef at Tzadik. But then there's another part. And this part is a little bit more complex. He says, you're like Paro. Just like Paro lies, you lie. This takes a tremendous amount of courage. How could Yehuda have come to Yosef and said to him, you're a liar? What does that mean? Could any of us, let's say Lamashal, let's say President Biden would retract his words and he would say, I'm no longer supporting Eretz Yisrael. Do you think that any politician, do you think any member of APAC, do you think any member of the OU could walk into President Biden's office, open up the door and look at Biden and say, you're a liar. You didn't fulfill your word. President Biden is nothing compared to Yosef Atadik in that moment. Yosef Atadik is not only the leader of the free world, he's the provider of everything. And Binyamin is being held hostage. And this is big, this is a shevet. There's much more on the line. To lose a shevet is to lose something massive for all time. And Yehuda in this moment, with a zachutzpah, he walks into Yosef HaTzadik's office and he says, you, like your father before you, just like the leader of your country, you're a liar. What's the pshat here? So there's a very beautiful pshat that I want to share with you. And the pshat is like this. We all come from somewhere. Every one of us in this room comes from somewhere. And our behavior is not only a product of the way that we see ourselves, but our behavior is also a product of the way that we've been seen and the way that we've seen our parents and our role models growing up in our lives. I, I want to share with you something very important to me. It's something that I've been living with for a very long time. And, and I've always had this like suffolk in my head. Are we something independent of our parents? Like, is it possible for somebody who didn't have loving parents? Is it possible for somebody who didn't have parents who were great role models for them? Are they a something by and for themselves? Or are we just a product of our, not just genetic makeup, but the environment that we grew up in? And I think, as I've gotten a little bit older, I think the answer is we're somewhere in between. There's something called the self. There's a soul, Every one of us is a self. Even before we met our parents, every one of us has the capacity to be unbelievable. But there is no doubt in my mind that the most incredible soul that comes down into this world is a different human being if you grow up with parents who love you. And it could very well be that even if Chas Shalom, a person grew up in a dysfunctional home or in an abusive home, it could very well be that you have the capacity to become somebody amazing anyway. But there's no doubt that children who grow up in a home where they know that they're amazing and their parents are amazing and their parents are just like, you're the most incredible thing, there's no doubt that those kids are growing up with a different sense of self. I'll share with you somebody I'm very close to has 
in, in the most humble way. He's not a Baldaiva at all. There's zero arrogance in him. But in the most humble way, he's the most confident person I've ever met in my entire life. And it's a very rare thing to find someone with that level of confidence and that level of humility. And if you ask him, can you handle something, he just goes, yeah, I got it. And like, not in like a, not like a, you know, kol chiva yadi, you know, like toxic masculinity type of way, just in like a very simple, like, if you ask him to do something, he can do it. I asked him, where did you get this confidence from? Like, where does that come from? That you just like, you're so naturally talented, you could do all these things? So he told me it came from his mother. He said his mother never had a bad word to say in her life about him. She knew that his mother was like, he just knew growing up, my mother is behind me 100%. She would walk into school, she would go into parent-teacher conferences, she would sit down and say, knew how awesome is my son? My mother walked into parent-teacher conferences, it's not her fault, it was my fault. My mother walks into parent-teacher conferences as a kid growing, like, she would sit down and like brace herself. You know, you're not parents yet. I don't think for many of you. Yeah, you're not parents yet. And uh, you'll see there are certain children. I, Baruch Hashem, I have, I have uh, Kanai Nahar, six children. I just went to my first parent-teacher conferences because I only have one son. I'm not invited to my daughter's parent-teacher conferences. So I'm only now, after 20-plus years of being a parent, I'm only starting to parent my children. But my, my wife tells me that, like, four of my daughters, four of the, the older girls, like, three of them, when my wife would sit down at parent-teacher conferences, she would sit down banachas, you know, like, Tell me how awesome my kids are. But one of them, I have one child that's like me. You know, one child that's like, you know, you sit down at parent-teacher conferences and they start off by going, let's focus on the positive first, right? <laughs> it's like certain kids and they throw out the potential, you know, like you can tell that they have a lot of potential. I think maybe we're going to move their seat to the front of the room. You know that type of kid? I love her. She's, she's like my favorite. But <laughs> parents are not supposed to have favorites, but she's definitely the favorite. She's a... By far my most talented kid. And Bez Hashem, only a year and a half left to school, and then we're like free and clear. Just, everyone should daven for her. I'll give you her name afterwards. <laughs> he told me his mother, every time anything, she's like, how awesome is my son? If you grow up knowing that your mother thinks you're awesome, you know the impact that that has on you? You grow up, your mother, like, my mother had this irrational belief in me. Like, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm so grateful to her. I, I'm like some kids are like, especially today, 2023, I have to say, the kids are awesome. And one of the most amazing things about kids today is they don't lie. There's a real environment of honesty and authenticity and integrity for today's kids. In the 90s, it was deny till you die. It was like, you don't know nothing. You got nothing on me, right? I'm going down with this ship. And my mother was the only, she was so sweet. She was, I told my mother, I had a conversation with my mother six years ago. Me and my brother sat down. We're in our 30s. And my brother was in his mid-30s. I was in my late 30s. And my mother randomly at the table said, like, you guys would never have done that. And my brother and I burst out laughing. We're like, Mom, maybe it's time to tell you what we did when we were 16. Three hours later, my mother had to stop the conversation. She's like, I can't do it anymore. My heart. You know, like, she was in danger. We're like, remember that summer that you went away to England for the summer? And you just said, like, you're in charge, and I was 16 years old. My mother's like, yeah. I was like, remember you gave me, like, a couple thousand dollars to take care of everyone? She's like, yeah. I was like, I kicked him out of the house for the three weeks that you were gone. She's like, what are you talking about? I was like, yeah, he went to live by, by Benji for the summer. He wasn't here. My mother's like, what would you do with all the money? I was like, you don't want to know what I did with the money. You know, like, it's like, she, she, mom, she wasn't able to contain herself. She's like, she's like, you lied to me? I was like, come on, man. Like, you know, that was your fault. You put me in that situation, you know. But, you know, if you have a mother who, even if you're lying, she's the one that believes you, 
Even though all my rebbeim would tell my mother all the time, they're like, you know he's lying. She's like, I, I know you think that, but I'm telling you, I can tell when he's lying. My mother, God, God bless her soul, she could never tell when I was lying. She was like, <laughs> but you know, it builds a person. It builds a person. When we see a child behaving in a certain way, it's important to ask ourselves, who made him that way? Who made him that way? Why do children behave the way that they do? You know, we're not meant to grow up in a society without parents. It's not normal. It's not natural what's happening today. Today, and it's nobody's fault, but to be in the Orthodox Jewish community today, you have to make a quarter of a million dollars to be poor. That's a, that's a real thing. Play it out. After taxes, yeshiva tuition. You need to make a quarter of a million dollars to be poor. A quarter of a million dollars to just barely make it. That's why everyone's in size sims. That's why everyone's becoming an accountant. Do you think all these guys want to be accountants? I promise you. Some of these guys are actually really creative. But as one guy said to me, he goes, it's very safe. There's a guy, I love this guy. He's amazing. He had a real question. He's like, Rebbe, I, I would love to be a therapist. I really feel like I have a talent for working for people. I was like, yeah, what's the problem? He's like, it's just not safe. So I'm going to become an accountant. You have a person who's like destined to like help people. And he's like, I've got to become an accountant. There's a tremendous amount of pressure. And both parents have to work. So when, who, who's raising the kids? Who's raising the kids? So who's raising the kids? Uh, there's things I don't want to say out loud. But who's raising... Some, some people we know who are raising the kids. Baruch Hashem, some of our kids are multilingual from the time that they're a fetus. <laughs> but the emphasis is that there's something going on in the world today. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. There's something going on in the world today that, that, that kids are being raised by each other. That's why kids are... like. Today, and, and it's wild. Parents are saying this out loud. They don't even realize what they're saying. Like, yeah, but I don't want my kid to be around that kid because maybe that kid's going to be a bad influence. Why are we so worried about kids being bad influences on other kids? If your kid is growing up in a strong home with loving parents who have time and there's a deep sense of attachment that's happening in the home, why are you so nervous that the kid is going to run off with another kid? Why would he leave your home if your home is a happy place? Now, when I was growing up, I, I grew up... Uh, Regular, regular modern Orthodox family. My parents are both Bali Tshuva. They're amazing people. I'm so blessed to have such inspired parents. But when I was growing up, we, you know, we had, a, we had a television in the house. My father was the president of a major television company. So we had, we had a television in the house. But I went to a school called Yeshiva Darche Torah. Anybody here know Yeshiva Darche Torah in the five towns? I didn't really belong in Darche. I was expelled from a different school in the neighborhood. So, so Darche was the school that would take me in. But it was like a strange thing that Rabbi Bender Shlita was giving schmoozing about like you know, watching television, and, and I, like, my father was the president of a television company. It was like a, a strange type of, you know, crossroads. So my brother had a friend. My brother had a friend whose name was Moshe Cherny. Moshe Cherny was Rabbi Cherny's son. Rabbi Cherny is today a, a very big Rebbe in Shayoshev, a tremendous tzaddik. And Moshe Cherny had very long payas. And my brother and Moshe Cherny would go rollerblading around Farakoy, and my father would call Moshe Cherny the rollerblading Rebbe because... If you have if you have payas and you rollerblade, it's very fun to watch. You know, it's like it's like racing stripes. You know, it's like, and if you're really good and you're like, you know, flipping and turning and like the payas are everywhere. So, my father thought it was hysterical. Years later, many many years later, I asked Rabbi Cherney, I said, Rabbi, how in the world did you let Moshe hang out of my house? Rabbi Cherney didn't have a television in the house. Rabbi Cherney's house, in in his ba like he has like a mini base medrash in his home. He has so many svarim in his home that. Not only are all the walls lined with svarim, but he has bookshelves that are movable. 
because he has two levels of bookshelves full of svarim, and he's learned them all. They're all dog-eared, they're all underlined. It's an amazing thing to see. So I asked him, I said, Rebbe, how did you let Moshe come hang out in my house? You know he was watching television in my house. You know he was watching movies in my house. That's what we did in my house. And Rabbi Charney looked at me like I was crazy. It was one of the best musters I ever got in my life. He looked at me and he goes, first of all, your parents are special people. Right away, that was like, you know, right, like... Like, right, I forgot, my parents are special people. Just because you don't have the same values doesn't mean my parents aren't awesome. He said, second of all, I was very confident in the chinuch of my home. I wasn't worried that my son was going to go off the derech because he was watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with your brother. <laughs> and he's right. A parent who actually raises their child, you don't need to be so... Con- I'm not saying there's not an influence of the community, but attachment is meant to happen in the home. And when the attachment happens at home, we don't have to freak out every time our kid is sitting next to somebody in class. And by the way, it's infected the entire Jewish community today, right, left, and center. Everybody's talking about who's my kid going to be next to. I see it all the time. Parents ask it out loud with no sense of busha. I'll go to a a parents' meeting, all the prospective parents coming to look at Mevaseret. The first question, what type of kids do you want in Mevaseret? What are you asking me? What are you really asking me? You want to know who's your son going to be next to because you're terrified. Because if the kid next to him is doing something, maybe my kid's going to get roped into it. Why would your kid get roped into it? Are you not confident in the chinuch of your own home? You told your child what you believe. Your child knows what he believes. Why would your kid want to leave your home? You know why your kid might want to leave your home? Because maybe you weren't home. Because maybe you weren't providing the attachment that that kid needs. Because if you're a child and you're looking at your, if you're a child and you're looking at your world and you're going, let's see. I see my parents for an hour or two a day. I see my friends for nine hours a day. Which one provides more safety for the child? It's uncomfortable, but the truth of the matter is that for a kid today, the reason that they're so pulled by their friends is because if their friends are going to do something and they're not going to go along with it, the kids are providing more, more attachment and more safety than the parents are. It's not the parents' fault. We've raised the level of affluence in our community to such a degree that the parents can't spend time with the kids. And we say it's not about quantity time, it's about quality time. It's true, but you know what? It's also about quantity time. It's also just about regularity. It's also about being there for your kids and spending time with your kids every day. And the mothers in our community today are heroes. Because a woman who wakes up in the morning, who gets her kids off to school, who goes to work, who comes home at 4.35 o'clock in the afternoon just in time to take her kids and makes dinner and does homework and puts the kids in a bath and gets the kids to sleep. And by the time her husband comes home at 8.30, she's a shmata. She's pasha to shmata. That's why the, the words you hear today from, from mothers all over the world is, I'm just done. I'm done. How much could you possibly ask me to hold? But the reason that these parents are doing an amazing thing, those mothers that are pushing themselves like crazy, and those fathers that are jumping to spend time with their kids on Sunday afternoon, not the fathers that drop off their kids at Little League. Little League is not a babysitting service. If your kid is playing Little League, that's an opportunity to go and to pull up a chair and to watch your kid's game. Aye, but it's two and a half hours on a Sunday. It's two and a half hours of your kid sitting there and saying, if I have a game, mom and dad show up to the game. I, I can't tell you, it's obvious to me the difference. When I was a kid growing up, my father was my Little League coach. And he would always say, this is not a babysitting service. But you know, there was always parents that saw it as a babysitting service. And I want you to know, as an adult, looking back on those kids, it was obvious to me why those kids were the way they were. It's because their parents were looking to get rid of them. Isn't that nice? They could play for the Young Israel Farakaway Little League team, and I don't need to see my kid for two and a half hours. There's always that parent that says, come, let's learn together, and there's always the parent that says, come, let's play, let's play backgammon together. 
I'll teach you how to play chess. I'll teach you how to play whatever card game. I want you to know learning with your kids is a beautiful thing. If you have a husband who's learning with his children, that's a beautiful thing. But there's also such a thing as we just want to spend time with each other. Let's go have a catch in the backyard. That used to be a normal thing. You don't have to be so frum with your kids. My father used to say, a little learning never hurts, so let's learn as little as possible. That's the father I grew up with. <laughs> this is my rebellion. <laughs> I want you to know the kids would run to come to my house on a Shabbos afternoon. And you know who was running to come to my house on a Shabbos afternoon? It was all the kids of all the Rabbanim. They were the ones that were running to spend Shabbos. And they used to say out loud, if we come with you right after davening and we go home, then we don't need to learn with our dads. Because if you think that the only thing your father wants out of you is to learn Torah, then what type of relationship do you have with your father? We're a product of our environments. We're a product of our homes. But there's also something very beautiful about knowing that. It means taking an appropriate amount of accountability. That if you are in a certain way, and you're sitting there judging yourself and saying, I shouldn't be the way that I am, I want you to know that you're wrong. Every single person in this room is understandable. And anything that's understandable is forgivable. How many of us think, and people go to therapy for this for years, people will pay $10,000 a year, $20,000 a year on therapy bills. I can save you that money right now. It's not me, this is like, a, it's like an obvious thing. If you understand about yourself that every single thing that you do makes sense and you just need to figure out where it's coming from and where, how you got to this moment with kindness and compassion and appropriate levels of context, you can forgive yourself and you could let go of the person you've been to become the person that you want to be. We're stuck in certain behavior patterns because we don't understand that this is a product of where I come from. You know, it's a... Uh, it's a scary thing, but I, I took a, a parenting class. I had the unbelievable opportunity to take a parenting class with a woman whose name is Dr. Dr. Anat Bornstein. I don't know if anyone here has heard of Anat Bornstein. She's like the queen of something called IFS. Have you heard of IFS? You don't have to out yourselves. If, if you went to therapy but you don't want to say, you could just not do anything, and I'll know that you know what IFS is. Okay, so about 30% of the room right now knows what IFS is, so thank you for coming with me on this. So I had the opportunity to take a, uh, a parenting class with her. It was a life-changing parenting class. And the, one of the reasons it was life-changing is because she said, how were you parented as a child? And then she and had us fill out like a whole questionnaire, and then she said, are you mimicking your parents or reacting to your parents in raising your own children? And it broke me, I was like, oh my gosh. Like I'm literally either doing exactly what my parents did, the things that I promised myself I would never do, or going to the opposite extreme. And it brought into focus how much we're impacted by our environment. And her point was, parent consciously, make choices. But many of us are stuck in autopilot because we come from somewhere. And we don't even know the place that we came from. And we don't understand how our parts developed. And we don't understand why we're doing what we're doing. And so we just get into this thing of like, I just need to have more willpower. It's not about willpower, it's about understanding and forgiving ourselves. Yehuda approaches Yosef at Tzaddik, and he's about to fight for his brother's life. The first thing he says is, you're a paro, why are you behaving this way? But the second thing he says is, you're behaving this way because you're in the house of paro. You're impacted by your environment. This is your father, so to speak. You're the child of paro, and so you're acting like paro. That's not an angry thing that, Yosef, that Yehuda is saying to Yosef HaTzadik. It, it's trying to wake up Yosef HaTzadik to say, this behavior, you learned it from somewhere. You didn't make this up. 
Children are amazing. Children are really amazing. One of the one of the best blessings you'll have in your entire life is before your kids get big enough to care what other people think, you'll just get to see what it looks like to be raw and natural and unadulterated and unencumbered. You'll just see a human being as we're meant to be. And I love that stage. I love the first four or five years of every kid's life is beautiful. Because these kids are crazy. All these kids are naturally crazy. You've never met like a calm two-year-old. You know what I'm saying? Like you've never met a two-year-old that's not powerful. You ever, you ever, you ever take a two-year-old to the, to the grocery store for the first time and walk down the cookie aisle? You ever done that? Like the two-year-old looks at you and goes like, check it out. <laughs> like they get that, uh, that look in their eyes and then you try to negotiate with the two-year-old. You go, if you behave, and the kid's like, really? I'm going to do this right now, right? And the kid, like, on the floor, screaming, temper tantrum, right? And it's in the middle of the five towns, so everyone's looking, and, and then you're like, I don't want to be judged. So you, like, like, give the kid a box of cookies and reinforce that behavior for the next 20 years, that food <laughs> equals love if you just cry enough, right? Like, a little too close to home. The, uh, for me, yeah, the... Uh, I love that stage, because kids are real. You know what day I hate? I hate the day, and it, it's one day, you could pinpoint it. I hate the day when kids come home and they have, a better, they have a bigger need to fit in than to be themselves. That's the saddest day. My daughter, my nine-year-old daughter, I remember when it happened to her. My nine-year-old daughter was obsessed before she turned like six. She was obsessed with unicorns. And everything in her life was unicorns. I would, everything I would buy her was unicorns, unicorns, unicorns. And then she came to me one, one year right before the start of school. It's a very big thing. I don't know if you know this. It's a very big thing to buy a teak, to buy a knapsack. And it's, this is like a big social choice, like what knapsack you get in first grade. And she came to me and she said, Abba, please don't buy me a unicorn knapsack. And of course I was going to buy her like the biggest unicorn knapsack with like the horn coming off. <laughs> like the entire thing was like that shimmering thing that if you play with it, you know what I'm saying? Like, so I sat there. I said, Miriam, why don't, why, don't you, why don't you want a unicorn knapsack? She's like, unicorns are for babies. I was like, no, they're not. Unicorns are for you, right? Like, you're not, like, but she, it was so important to her to fit in. So she got, like, the, you know, whatever Adidas knapsack, you know, the kids in Israel like. It's the, it, it, kills, it, it kills us as a parent to see our children crumbling under this. But you know what? We all came from somewhere. We weren't always like this. We had to make decisions of how to survive in our lives. And the way that we are, those were survival decisions. When we're giving ourselves Musr, when we're giving somebody else Musr, are we doing it starting off, number one, by saying, you're awesome, I see you like this, why are you behaving like this? You're an unbelievable person, why would you be malachleich yourself by behaving in that way? And then the second thing is, I just want you to know you come from somewhere. It's not chas v'shalom angry, it's you come from somewhere. You're behaving like this because this is what was modeled for you. These were the survival tactics that you had. That's a kind way of treating somebody. To let them know that they're understandable and anything that's understandable is forgivable. I'll, I'll finish with this. When the war broke out, so there was, there was a young man in yeshiva, and I, I don't know how to say this nicely, but you know, like, I, I mean, I'm sure it was very different for the girls. You know, I don't really, like, I speak in the seminaries, but I don't really, like, talk to the girls so much. I'm sure the girls handled it very differently when the war broke out, and I'm sure that people were like, talking about their feelings and like unpacking things and there was like creating safe space for things. I'm, I'm sure all of that happened. And with the guys, it was a very different experience. I would ask the guys like, how you doing? They're like, yeah, you know, 
That's like the whole conversation. That's like the, like the entire level of like the spectrum of emotional expression was like, yeah, you know. Yeah, you know means I'm having a really hard time. There was one guy in yeshiva. He was like the toughest, most macho guy in yeshiva. He's walking around. He's going like, yeah, take these guys down. You know, like, like one of those like types of things. And he came into my office about a week into the war, and he broke down crying. And, and this is a kid who probably hasn't cried since he's six. And he's bawling. And so I, I just like trying to, I'm like, what's going on? What happened? And he goes, honestly, I'm just scared. Something had happened in his life. He's like, honestly, I'm just scared. And he couldn't appreciate about himself. And it was, it was horrific to watch. He couldn't appreciate about himself that that was a normal reaction. That's like an understandable thing. And in his mind, he was sitting there judging himself like, I know I'm acting like a baby right now and I shouldn't. And it's like, why are you so quick to reject who you are? And when we unpacked it a little bit and we started to understand his fears a little bit, it turned out that he had been living in fear for the last, I don't know, 13 years of his life. 14 years of his life. Pashat living in fear. And when I asked him where he learned that behavior from, he's like, he's like, Rebbe, that's everybody in my life. Everybody in my family, everybody's living with this dread. Because of a certain thing, I don't want to give away any details. Because of a certain thing that happened, everyone was living with dread. So I said to him, I just want you to know, it's a very simple thing, I just want you to know that what you're going through is totally understandable, and it's totally normal, and it's okay. And you saw just a sigh of relief. He was like, really, it's okay? I'm like, yeah. Like, big people live with these things, and it's normal to go through that. And you saw, he just like, you know that breath that you take like at some point in every session where you go, like, you go like, I just saw, he like, it melted away the pounds. He's carrying a 10,000 pound knapsack. A chavar of mine is a therapist. And uh, we were in this parenting class together. And we were t- doing one of the exercises. He looked at me and this is like a very therapeutic, you have to speak, do you, anyone here speak therapy? You know what I'm talking about? Like therapists speak in a like particular way. So I, I, you know, I'm like talking about a certain thing and he just said, so how long have you been carrying that bag? And I was like, I don't know, shut up. You know, like, <laughs> so I was, like, I was like, I don't know, like, I've been carrying it a long time. And he goes, so how heavy is it? I'm like, it's really heavy, just like, stop it. You know, I'm not, like, I'm not in session right now. You know, like, and he's like, what would it take to put it down? It's like, you gotta stop, man. Like, I'm done, like, sometimes when we just know that we're understandable, we can let go of that bag because it's really heavy, right? I guarantee you there's a lot of people in this room that have been sitting in judgment of themselves. And we shouldn't be. Because we're normal. Because we come from somewhere. Because we're awesome people who lost sight of our awesomeness. And this is part of our recovery. Yehuda comes to Yosef HaTzadik and that's like coming to the Melech. And anytime we see coming to the Melech, that's coming to Hashem. And if we're going to come to Hashem, then we have to start treating ourselves like godly souls to know who we are, and to know that if we're not behaving in accordance with our highest levels of dignity, it's not because we're bad people, but simply because we come from hurt places. And Bez Hashem, we should be Zaychari healing.